Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 29 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a sparkly crystal gem of a show lined up for you today. So I'm back in the chair where I belong, following my sojourn to the other side of the usual arrangement in our previous episode, and it feels good. I shall ease myself back into things in the same way I gently ease myself into a hot bath after running a marathon. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with hypnotherapist and IBS specialist, Helen Bremner. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Helen Bremner this week. We shall be exploring the subject of IBS, that's irritable bowel syndrome for those of you unaware, and how hypnotherapy can be used to treat it. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have great respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. You can add your thoughts, comments, and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. I'm delighted to be welcoming Helen Bremner to Hypnosis Weekly. I have actively pursued Helen for a while now, in purely professional terms, that is. You may recall a few editions back when our guest Reg Blackwood referred to her and her work, and a number of other regular listeners mentioned her, and others still have spoken highly of her presentation given at the 2015 Change Phenomena Conference. That is my favourite plaudit because I love that conference and the guys who organise it and those who attend it with all of my heart. As well as being an experienced uh, and uh, an experienced intensive care nurse, Helen is a hypnotherapist and counsellor and we'll find out much more about her shortly. So get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming the one and only Helen Bremner to Hypnosis Weekly. Welcome, Helen. 
Thank you. So let's let's roll our sleeves up and get stuck straight in. Tell us a little bit about your background. You know, how did you get into this field? What's your background and how have you arrived at where it is that you are now? Well, I spent most of my career as an intensive care nurse, which is extremely re- interesting, rewarding, fast pace. And all of that was absolutely brilliant. But I felt that we could help people with psychological issues much better mm. because intensive care is full of stress and difficulties as well as the life and death stuff Mm. and I found we weren't dealing with that terribly well for the the patients themselves and for their relatives the stresses anxieties of someone being close to death or you you yourself being close to death or having a loved one so can bring an awful amount of stress and I thought we were absolutely rubbish at it Mm. because we're busy with the airway breathing and circulation bit and not the whole person So I felt we lost that person, the need to save the lives and reduce the physical suffering. But then, you know, if we start looking at things like post-traumatic stress, that comes from the looking at the life and death and forgetting the person that lives afterwards. Mm. And I've always had an interest in sort of what you might call the power of hypnosis. And a long, long time ago, far back, sort of when I'm looking about nine years old, my dad had a little green book and I've no idea who wrote it or what anything was about. And... At one point, we're sort of messing around with my friends about 13 years old. We would, like, giggle our way through these inductions. This is how you make somebody hypnotise. It never worked. It never did. We had hours of giggles. But I wish I could find that book now. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I would love to read it. I've no idea who wrote it. I, but probably something absolutely wonderful, because it was just a tiny little booklet thing, but brilliant. Yeah. And sort of where I ended up where I am now, which is sort of a post-NHS job, it was the only one for irritable bowel syndrome in hypnotherapy in the country in primary care, so not in the hospitals where most of the NHS little tiny services have been. And it was a full-time job just to help people in the community to reduce the suffering, reduce the amount of time people had to go to hospitals. And it came from the NICE guidelines, which came out in 2008, and it felt like it was meant to be. It was the only one in the country, four miles away from my doorstep, at an interview, they said I was the only candidate that was worth listening to and the ideal person. Wow. So it seemed like that was fate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's something we're going to get to explore a bit later in the show um, um, because, you know, it's, it, it's something that um, several other professionals brought to my attention and said, look, you know, um, I, I mentioned your name and it was one of the reasons that I was so keen to, to get you on the show. Um, so so with, regards to, with regards to hypnosis... Um, um, tell me a little bit about about how you how you define it, and perhaps a little bit about how you arrived at that definition, and and even you know um, um, an idea of how you explain hypnosis to to your clients, the the, the patients within the program, um, um, and so on. Well, I find that almost those three questions are the same question. Yeah. In order to work out how to help somebody, they need to understand what it is you're going to do to them. Yes. And I find hypnosis is a joint process rather than me, like you see in sort of some of the exciting stuff on television, some of the street stuff. It's all about the power of the hypnotist over the hypnotee. Mm. And actually, for therapy, it's the other way around. It's the power of un- you're unlocking the power inside the hypnotee. So I find the hypnosis itself, I separate hypnosis from hypnotherapy. Hypnosis mm. to me is a process, you know, like sort of almost a standard definition of, you know, the focused awareness where you become less and less aware of certain things, more receptive to suggestion. Yeah. But that in itself isn't therapy. No. 
you can you know, just say you've got the, you know, the highway hypnosis of forgetting where you are, finding yourself at home, watching a film, getting involved in that emotionally, not really aware of the process. Mm. And for the therapy, I find those therapeutic or those hypnotic phenomena, such as being you know, more relaxed, which you choose to be, more focused on a particular thing, more opening up to the unconscious mind, and then using the therapeutic elements, which you can bring from all sorts of different therapies in order to help somebody. It's about helping somebody, the therapeutic sides. So in order to explain that to clients, I needed to have something that worked, particularly in the NHS. You can't just go, well, I'm going to hypnotise you, and they'll say, what does that mean? Mm. So I said, make sure, in order before I even hypnotise one client on the NHS, I had to make sure the definition made sense to other people as well as me. So I had to be very careful and run it through the communications department, run it through various other people for an accepted thing that they knew nothing about and I, I knew quite a lot about. And I make sure that they understand the process of hypnosis, that relaxed, focused attention and the therapy to help them with the problems that they've got wanting. And no one said to me, actually, I don't like that or I don't agree with that. So it works for me. It might not make sense to everybody. It might not be you know, scientific enough, but it works and my patients have agreed with it. So I'm quite happy with that one. Great, great, and and so, so tell us a little bit about about your major influences. Then, um, I, I mean, you mentioned the Little Green Book, but are there any other are there any books and authors that that you feel have contributed the most to 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 to, to who and how you are? Um, and and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about some of your major influences, teachers that have been influential upon you, and perhaps some of the reasons why. Well, I find to be looking at something you can access and everybody could access, would be Michael Yapko. I would recommend absolutely anything he has written. Mm-hmm. I find them accessible, easy to understand, a pleasure to read. What he says makes sense. And mm. to be honest, he is the one author in the field I don't find myself arguing with when I'm reading his work. <laughs> so um, things like, I mean, Waxman, you know, the Heartlands Medical and Dental Hypnosis, yep. very useful, lots of sort of, this is how you would do it, sort of not quite scripts, but this is what you would do, elements, what the problem is, what you're trying to guide as a solution. Brilliant book, I think, particularly someone starting out. Yeah. And, and also some, some like, you know, Weizenhofer. You know, I think he was an ex-physicist, so you find with him, it's very much, this is a point of scientific interest, almost desperate to sound intelligent rather than helpful. Sure. Sure, sure. Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, I've, uh, funnily enough, I've had that angled at me a few times. Um, <laughs> um, so, you, so, so I'm delighted. I've got something in common with Weizenhofer. There you um, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but it, 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 interestingly, um, um, we, we, we at my college, we we recommend um, Michael Heap edition of Heartlands and uh, Michael Yapko's trance work as, as central texts. I yeah. think all the learning requirements and learning outcomes um, can be can be found in in the pair of those books. Um, so so Helen, within your work and um, and within uh, within within your time applying hypnosis with with clients and so on um can you tell us a little bit about you know what have been perhaps the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've witnessed directly well sort of strange when you say directly not necessarily always in the room but i'm right, finding sure. that the is the the hypno tea which impresses me the most the yeah. people in my ibs clinics constantly impressed me they were from a very poor d- demographic area a lot of them a lot of them have been off sick for several years Lots of them had lots of health problems, and they would tell me of the amazing achievements they'd made. 
um, such as one of the lady who went up in a microlight after we did work on her fear of flying. Yeah. And someone right. else, and quite, quite a few of them, also had dental phobia. And I did dental treatment work with them in France and then went and had the thing later. So instead of somebody who accompanied them to the dentist, the work we did a few weeks beforehand, they went and had somebody had root canal with no anaesthetic. It was pretty impressive. And I've got a bit of a dental issue myself, so even working with them was therapy for me. And they got these things sorted. One lady suffered 38 lots of diarrhoea every single day. They'd been off sick for most of 10 years. She then got a job and was in charge of 143 staff by herself. Wow. And one of the, I think my, one of my favourites would be a chap who was a, a printer who was out of work. And after a session with me, just generally on confidence and looking after himself, mm. he just got the local yellow pages, found companies, phoned up a printer that wasn't recruiting and talked the MD into employing him. Wow. But, you know, this is a joy for me. This is what I, you know, this is the stuff I love hearing. And I mean, the, the, the previous one, the lady with, um, um, who'd had the, 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 the repeated bouts of um, diarrhoea daily to then go on and do that. You know, I, I, I find that astonishing i find that absolutely astonishing that essentially what we are doing is 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 communicating and using hypnosis and and can can have these outcomes you know i, I find it absolutely astonishing brilliant um helen if we could um if we could hop and skip into a time machine and and go back to when you started out in this field um knowing what you know now and based upon the experience that you have um is there anything that you do differently and if so what and is there any sort of advice that the person you are today would give to that younger you that you'd be happy to share with the hypnotherapist of today and those tuning in and listening well yes (laughs) (laughs) i started out as somebody who was quite low in confidence fascinated by hypnosis hypnotherapy but I thought I was going to be the person who would have, in order to make the course I took credible, I would be the person that failed it. Mm. Sat in the class, surrounded by people full of confidence. Some of them had their own businesses. Everybody said they were brilliant and wonderful. And I went in thinking, I'm only a nurse. I'm mm. only an intensive care nurse. So, well, actually, I hold people's lives in my hands every day. Yeah, exactly. But I couldn't see that because in the NHS we seem to be bred to put down what we're doing, not put it up. And... Also, as a part of that process, there was somebody, when we were training on Facebook, I'm practicing the Elman induction. I am doing this. I am doing that. And I was like, I'm too scared to even open the manual at the moment. And it turned out that person was just reading. And he Mm. wrote on Facebook, this is what I'm doing. Mm. So the message I thought there was to realize that not everybody has their heart on the sleeve like I do. And to not be intimidated by some people sort of hype about themselves, to big themselves up, probably to themselves. And I guess that's one of the downsides of there being no restrictions to who enters hypnosis professions, because there are people around, and I'm sure we've all met some of them, who want to use skills that they think they can gain to manipulate others. But in a regulated profession, they would probably be weeded out at the point of entry to say that's not an inappropriate use. We wouldn't want people to be like that. But then, as you say, the downside of regulation would be that it would fall into the hands of the medical professionals who would seek to over-medicalise it, over-intelligence it, and miss the whole point of people who choose to see a therapist for help with their problems. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, now, this, this is um, a major discussion that I find myself embroiled in on a regular basis. And, and you know, you, you've put it 
so succinctly and eloquently there it's it's really lovely to hear um and that that discussion i mean one of the things i've always been there's been a bit of a raison d'etre within my own training has been to attempt somehow to to bridge the chasm that exists between academia and medical profession and frontline hypnotherapists because uh, a lot of the time my my own experience has been that the two are sort of blissfully unaware of one another a lot of the time um, um and, and yet there is that difficulty that exists that that you've just mentioned so beautifully there and, and, and speaking of which then tell us a little bit about you know what, what are your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to hypnosis then well, as I say, back to the NHS, which is a lot of what I've done in my life, it's yeah. all about having you know, a reason. It's either evidence-based, so it needs to be sound research, or it needs to be the best practice. So mm. anecdotally, what seems to work best? And it's very difficult sometimes when you have, you know, looking at research, it needs the same approach to be used with every client every time in order to prove this efficacy and that the changes seen in the research client group is due to the therapy and not to another incidental cause. And I guess the problem with hypnosis and hypnotherapy is there isn't much research, relatively speaking, to other things, particularly mm. when you're comparing a hypnotic approach to a drug which has to go through years of um, research and development in order to be allowed to be used. Yeah. And, and so then they have to prove that scientifically that it does work because of the restricted need to deliver the same approach to very different clients with very different needs. Yeah, yeah, And again, when you're looking at research, you'll hear some people say, oh, there's a, there's a research paper. And it's just someone saying, once upon a time I did this, that is not research. No, that's, no. That's potentially a case study or a bit of information. So you're finding people are over-egging the pudding sometimes, which then irritates the pants off people in academia, irritates the pants off in the people in the medical professions. And yet they could actually be right, but they're overstating it and they're, what they're saying is quite incorrect by what they're saying. It doesn't mean that somebody without an academic or a medical background has no business being in it, mm. but it also means just be careful with what assertions you're making and be proving what you're doing is worth doing by keeping those records, keeping those details. And that's how CBT got used on the NHS. People just did questionnaires and they got questionnaires and more questionnaires and more questionnaires they kept asking the same questions to the people every time they saw them that provided their evidence base yeah yeah absolutely um um that was um, um anybody listening go rewind rewind helen's answer to that question and listen to it repeatedly um i'm really really on the on the nose as far as i'm concerned um helen tell us where can people go to learn a bit more about your work and your approach to hypnosis well, the um, authors to well, editors through several medical journals approach me to write. And then as soon as someone starts writing, you write for somebody, then you get all these lots of people saying, please write for me. Yeah. So I find, slow down. But two of the ones I have done, so you can just Google me as Helen Berman and IBS, and that'll bring up the frontline gastroenterology paper I wrote and complementary therapies in clinical practice. Yeah. I've got a little WordPress blog under IBS hypnotherapist, and a little website, which is www.ibshypnotherapycourse.webs.com. And however you want to Google me, you can contact me that way if you want to. Great, great. Um, Helen, thank you ever so much for that um, today. Really, really useful stuff there. Um, we will be back with Helen Bremner in just a few minutes' time. I 
really enjoyed that interview. You know, it seems crazy to me that someone who communicates so beautifully and effectively could ever have suffered with self-confidence. We'll be back with Helen for our professional discussion shortly. Right now, though, let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. I have three stories for you this week. The first story this week is entitled Police Warn of Rise in Hypnosis Thefts During Fasting Month. Yes, indeed, I thought I'd start this week's hypnosis in the news with some utter nonsense. So, according to the Jakarta Post, the Jakarta Police have warned of a wave of crimes involving hypnosis in the run-up to the Idol Fitri holiday. And I'll quote, As Idol Fitri approaches, there is a tendency for such crimes to increase. That's according to the force's General Crimes Directorate, Chief Senior Commissioner Krishnamurti. Now, the police recently arrested one of five fraud suspects identified as A.L., for allegedly stealing cash and materials worth 2 billion rupees, that's about $150,000 or so, from a victim at Pluit Market in Penjaringan in North Jakarta. The five allegedly hypnotised the victim after successfully convincing him the process could cure his illness. The remaining four suspects are still at large. Hmm. Um... The victim said she'd been a victim of a hypnosis crime several years ago. Also, um, a week before Idol Fitri, she took a uh, Kopaja public bus, number 19, heading to Tana Abang in central Jakarta, when a man in his 50s got on and sat across from her. They uh, had a conversation uh, with a younger man behind her joining in. When she alighted, the two followed, continuing to talk in the street. The older man asked why she seemed preoccupied, and I quote her. I told him I was searching for a husband. He began advising me and told me he believed I would find one, but that I needed to trust him, she said. Now, the last thing that she remembered before she left the two was swapping her handbag for a bag of leaves to be thrown into a river to rid herself of bad luck. And I quote again. I walked alone to the river and I threw the leaves in. That was when I realised that I had been hypnotised. I didn't have my bag, my purse or my two mobile phones with me anymore. I also gave them my ATM pin, she said, adding that she was still embarrassed by the incident. Hmm, Okay. so how is this anything to do with hypnosis, is my comment. And on what grounds did she, in inverted commas, realise she had been hypnotised. You know, does do, do she know what hypnosis is? Anyway, the newspaper, uh, the Jakarta Post, they've got an expert in. Thank goodness for that. They've got an expert in to shed some light on matters. So, um, certified hypnosis therapist Divi Sunaranjanu explains that the unconscious mind is obedient and easily led. Ah, that's what it is. Thanks for this guy. Anyway, he's quoted as saying, in a hypnosis theft... The perpetrators engage the victims in long conversations that fluster or confuse them, leading them away from consciousness. Mm. Uh, the founder of self-help training center Hypnocreative Indonesia, he, he said that. Um, um, and, and his advice is to prevent oneself falling victim to such ploys. One must avoid leaving one's mind blank. If on a long journey home for the upcoming holiday, he said, travellers should try to keep themselves occupied mentally. Ah, 
thank goodness for him. You know, good job we have these experts to keep us safe and also exponentially more terrified than ever before by validating such nonsense. Now, I'm not going to give a critique on this story because it does not deserve it. Instead, I'll wipe the rabid foam from my chin and move on to our second story. Story number two, entitled Chef Too Scared to Leave the House After Being Called Ugly and Retarded Due to Rare Neurological Condition, is finally cured of agoraphobia by hypnotherapy. Um, this story, I've got to be honest, you know, it initially made me very sad indeed, very sad to read it. Um, um, it's the same kind of sadness that often fuels my desire to work in this field. I find myself questioning the very nature of my fellow man at times. Um, and my faith gets dented at times when I see stuff like this or read it. As a hypnotherapist who has worked with thousands of individual clients, but also, you know, a fallible human being, I can sometimes get drawn into feeling sad as a result of that which my clients have had to experience. And uh, I work hard, and I'm guessing a lot of hypnotherapist professionals work hard to remain objective and professional in order to serve these people best. Um, but Richard Savage, the, the man at the centre of this particular article, has Moebius syndrome, and that causes facial paralysis. As a result, he has been bullied. He suffered prejudice throughout much of his life due to the way he looks and his appearance, his facial expression. Um, he stopped leaving the house for two entire years due to fearing abuse uh, and a continuance of the abuse that he suffered. Um, and then the story goes on. Uh, after a course of hypnotherapy, he was able to go outside for the first time. So, you know, the outcome is uplifting. It's joyful as far as I'm concerned, and it's a great promotion for the field of hypnotherapy. Thank goodness for that. I must say, you know, on a, as a side issue, the Daily Mail do tend to give a lot of coverage to hypnotherapy related stories. And I think that is a good thing. One of the issues I do have with the Daily Mail, though, is that on the same page as these articles, these really valid hypnotherapy articles, are links to stories about Kim Kardashian criticising Taylor Swift in a Twitter spat. And then how Taylor Swift has hit back against Nina Minaj over body type issues. How Khloe Kardashian, and by the way, that's Khloe spelt with a K, of course, um, how she's been showing off her Jim honed body. How posh spice Victoria Beckham has gone gluten-free, interestingly. And how Millie McIntosh was recently embarrassed that husband Professor Green publicly shared photos of her in the bath. I just end up spending the rest of my day reading, studying and digesting this highbrow, wholly relevant, important stuff, educating myself and stimulating my brain with all that goodness that I become less productive than I had hoped for as a result. Anyhow... Third story this week is entitled Olivia Munn was hypnotised into working out. Now, I do not think that a redeeming feature of this podcast has ever been to descend into blokish fawning. And I'll do my best to resist that urge with this particular story. But after our previous stories, uh, two stories, I wanted to, to end the hypnosis in the news section this week on a happy note. So this is the story that actress Olivia Munn, who starred in the X-Men as well as featuring in the TV show Newsroom and a load of other stuff. Um, she got into shape using hypnosis, as well as having successful treatment for issues that she faced with OCD hair pulling. Hypnosis helped her to ensure that she gets in the gym at 6 a.m. every day. 
Oh, man. A, a beautiful woman capable of overcoming her issues, a devoted fan of hypnotherapy, and now every bit of a fitness freak as I am. She is currently my third favorite female on the planet. That's after my wife and daughter, of course, who are just simply more awesome than she is. So links to these stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion then. I welcome back Helen Bremner and I ask her about her work treating IBS, her approach um, and her work whereby she set up and led the only NHS primary care IBS hypnotherapy service in the UK. So here you go. Here's this week's professional discussion with Helen Bremner. Enjoy. Okay, I'm delighted to be back with Helen Bremner. Um, when I uh, when I was interviewing Reg Blackwood uh, some episodes ago, uh, at the same time I had. Um, a number of people suggest, and I, I was looking for, for, for other guests on the show, and several people spoke to me about uh, about Helen, our guest here today. Um, Reg Blackwood mentioned um, Helen and Helen's work with the NHS dealing with IBS and, um, and, and really piqued my interest. Helen is someone whose work I'd been aware of for, for, for a number of years prior to then, but never really studied and got into it. And when you go and start Googling it and you see this sort of really impressive array of, of papers and projects and things that are going on. Um, um, of course, we want to explore it a little bit more. Um, welcome back, Helen. Helen, tell us a little bit about, about, about the project, how it came to be that you came to be working with the NHS and treating people for IBS. It started from, there was, a, in the old days of PCT, so primary care trusts, yeah. so that was community rather than hospitals, they had a certain amount of money that every year they would say, let's do something innovative, something different. So very imaginatively, it was called the Innovations Project. Yeah. <laughs> and when the NICE guidelines came out in 2008, they wrote, thought, let's try this something slightly different. IBS is 50% of the gastroenterologist workload in the hospitals. So there's a jolly good reason to keep the work out in the community and reduce that workload and therefore the expense right. of what the treatment was. And so they said, well, evidence-based, here it is. And it, the NHS works with evidence. So, you know, Warwell's been publishing since yeah. 1982 on the subject. Yeah. Have a job. Let's have something which is 18 months, but reviewable every three months. So if I didn't prove myself every three months, I was out of my ear. Right. And they gave me a blank sheet of paper and said, do it. Right. Provide IBS hypnotherapy, full stop. Right. So, so I went. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you were given just utter autonomy. Yes. Of course, you know, I had to keep everything as tightly regarded as possible, hardly anything, hardly anything to spend. Mm. But I had my clinic rooms that I didn't get charged for. I was allowed to order a hypnotherapy couch so it wasn't a medical couch. So a lot of these people had a bit of a, a medical phobia or at least were tired of being let down as they saw it by the medical system yeah so i wanted something that wasn't a medical couch that would sort of relate them to being unwell rather than something more relaxing yeah and there was an awful lot of hoops to do with the governance around having a hypnotherapy couch which was needed to be moved about for manual handling purposes it also needed to be able to be relaxing so it was a beauty therapy couch spliced with something on wheels <laughs> that had 
all sorts of issues with things like that. Uh, how, I, funny. how funny! How funny! A whole new set of issues for a hypnotherapist. Stuff you wouldn't think about. No. But because it was NHS, it had to be box ticked. All yeah. of these things there, like what equipment I would use. I like a CD, particularly when you've got a working in NHS clinics that I was in GP surgeries. There was a lot of background noise. Yeah. So I like to have a CD just to relax people a bit and myself mostly, I think, yeah. to talk with things like that. So I started off with getting my questionnaires together. They had to be validated. So not something I'd made up myself, but something had been proved to work. Yeah. So I had the... Um, well-known IBS quality of life, yep. the symptom severity score, which Warwell wrote. Yeah. And, but because it was just words, and the words were all a bit wonky and not with the numbers, I had to put in sort of smiley faces and sad faces in it to make it a visual analogue. Yes. In that, I had to then revalidate that because I changed it, therefore it wasn't validated anymore. Really? So a lot of paperwork, a oh. lot of red tape, yeah. but then that made things credible when I got my results. Yes. Yeah. So one of general health, one of IBS-specific symptoms and IBS quality of life. And then free text, what do you want to get out of being here? Nothing to do with IBS, everything to do with IBS. Yeah. So I had that as my background for every patient. And I asked them questions at the beginning, at the middle and at the end. And 97% of my patients got reduced symptoms according to these validated questionnaires. Wow. wow. And, and, and so they also were given um, um, an online measurement tool of some kind it was paper-based so it wasn't sort of some of my patients strangely enough were sort of 70s and 80s whereas right, if you look yeah. at the demography it's normally around your 40s 20s to 40s yes. but actually out there in the community the older people were there too so it needed to be something that was accessible to everybody so by having the paper copy and handed out everybody was assessed exactly the same way yeah yeah Great, great. I always um, manage to uh, uh, afford myself a highly childish uh, giggle at the fact that Olaf Paulsen's um, process involved his peers, the, the, the people within his studies, filling out a daily log. Um, the fact that it was called a daily log just still in you. massive letters at the top of the paper. Um, I always afford myself a, a, a cheap titter at that. So, 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 so how did it go? How did it go, the project? Tell us about it. Well, what I was doing with it was thinking at the beginning, what do I think somebody might need? And the more people I saw, the more it became something that, yes, I could add people to this generalisation that people with IBS needed X, Y and Z. Yeah. And I found that people with IBS needed confidence. They needed self-worth. Yeah. I found out from talking to my patients that whereas you know, your average general, you know, well or comfortable with themselves human being, would give and keep giving, but at some point they would stop because they needed to keep a little reserve for themselves in order yeah. for them to carry on with their lives. Yeah. And I found that my patients would keep giving until they had absolutely nothing left. Mm. And in order to find that, sort of these, a lot of these people were parents as well, which another, you know, it's a very giving role to have. Yes. And I found these people needed to value themselves and to realise that, spending time on themselves, looking after themselves, wasn't selfish like they thought it was. It was actually essential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so so, so a, lot of the, a lot of the sort of symptoms that they were citing coming and seeing you were sort of comorbid with, with, with the IBS. Completely. Yeah. And you'd find that there would be people who perhaps got a headache at some point before they got IBS and they'd pop the paracetamol and carry on because they believed they had to. Yeah. And then I sort of put it to them, do you think that your body is going, well, I'm trying to get your attention here? Or maybe your unconscious mind saying, I'm trying to get your attention here. If you're going to ignore a headache, 
I'm going to give you a problem you can't ignore. <laughs> yeah, and the right. people associated with that. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Um, um, so with regards, I, I mean, you know, the, the, there's an incredibly um, impressive uh, uh, success rate there with the, with, with the 97% that you mentioned. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that virtually everybody that's currently listening now is begging me to ask the question, you know, um, um, and that is, what did you do? You know, can you tell us a little bit about the, the actual methodology uh, yeah. with regards to, to, to treating the people that came to see you? Absolutely. As I said, at the beginning, I was just working very much individually with each person's needs. But right, then I so found... it wasn't a sort of standardised protocol that you just sort of slapped on as far as everybody is concerned? It was... Not at the beginning. It tended to then become uh, something that would apply the more people I saw. Yeah. But I think, particularly in the NHS, you haven't got the sort of the, the secondary gain of, I actually need this to work because I'm paid for it. People right, yeah. didn't have any need to, for it to work. And actually, there's a lot of secondary gain from not getting better with something like IBS sometimes. Yes. And so when I got into the system a bit and been you know, exploring things with these individualized therapies, I actually found, as I said before, about they needed the confidence and they needed things. So I then devised something which was this program that's got those results consistently with almost everybody. Mm. And so I've started with the CD every session, the first, every patient I give the first session, a CD. So they get used to my voice, yeah. they get used to a process, and I'd call it a story. So it starts off in a place where they can just become calm, mm. which is a nice cave with the water that they can drink and become stronger and calmer. The more they drink of this cool healing water, which is a nice anchor in the waking state, you drink a glass of cool healing water, you'll feel like you do here. So it's trying to link things from everyday process most people can drink water or would drink water to this strength and calming sense in this cave there's a lot of um sort of ego strengthening getting rid of your baggage and i put it in a trunk because there were some people who actually wanted their rubbish back right so throwing it away and completely getting rid of it then took their choice away yeah and i wanted people to be able to make their choices by having a trunk that they can lock but then they can come back and take all the crap back if they really want to, or they can leave it behind where it belongs. It's up to them. Again, it's about choice rather than someone doing it to them. Because I had to make sure that I wasn't building dependency on me or my work and also helping them to be to build dependence on themselves, knowing that they can help themselves. Yeah. And it's establishing and developing some self-efficacy. Exactly. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so okay, we get the CD and, um, um, and, and some education about the process, I'm guessing. Yes, I mean, it may almost not come. I know Warwell's work was all about the anatomy and physiology and they need all this detail. And I thought, well, for me, I found that my patients didn't really want to know. They wanted understanding. They wanted a model that worked. Right. And with my very particular intensive care head on, if someone told me that they had a stomachache and they pointed to their sort of intestine, I'd be going, that's not my stomach. That's not helpful. They call that a stomachache. They want want help (laughs) with a stomachache. They don't want a lecture. Yeah, if they're coming complaining they have stomachache, for you to say, actually, actually, that's your lower intestines just there. Um, yeah, um, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They don't want to don't know. Don't be telling people. They, <laughs> if it helps, great. I mean, I used to tell them about the, the fight, flight and fright, the, the, crux, yeah. and the sympathetic arousal and then chronic, constantly being in that level of stress. Yeah. And think in order to be, just to relax, just to go into hypnosis, you're already relaxing. And you find, and I was telling them about the, there's a, a an artery that goes straight across the mesenteric 
which mm. cuts off supply, or supplies your blood supply to your bowel, but also gets much reduced in stress because you're not busy digesting a Sunday roast. You're running away from the saber-toothed tiger or whatever yes. it is. So in order to be comfortable and digest properly, you need to allow the blood flow to the bowel. Yeah. yeah. And that made sense to them. Yeah. So yeah, it's that, that sort of thing that then you go, yes, I've got that level. But as I said, they don't need a lecture. They don't need to go to yeah. medical school in order to sort IBS out. They just need an understanding of what stress does to their body and why they're feeling the way they're feeling. Yeah, yeah. And and so is it at that point as well, um, um, so that they're going to have a disc that they can, that, that I, I'm guessing that they take home and they practice with um, um, a, 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 a sort of moderate amount of education that, that you've just explained there. And then do you start to conceptualise hypnosis at this point? Um, they have a, a, a leaflet I'd send if they invite them for an appointment or if it's sort of in, in private work, I send them you know, just a little the equivalent to the NHS leaflet I wrote that right. just explains, like we spoke about earlier, the difference between hypnosis as I'd see it yeah. and hypnotherapy. And if they don't want to come, then they don't. Sure, but if sure. they do, and I just say, what do you understand by it? Just making sure that they're not expecting to be full out anaesthetized like a lot of people have done. Yeah. Because otherwise, I can hear your voice. If I can hear your voice, it's not working. Yeah, yeah. So right, for me, right. the, the difference between the conscious listening and the unconscious programming, and the sort of almost like the inner child trying to help but not knowing how, it's that sort of understanding I like to give to them to make sense of why your body would behave in a certain way that's not helpful to you. Sure, sure. And then sometimes taking that responsibility and going, this you've you've told your body to do it because nobody's born with IBS. No, no. it's a maladaptive learning that you've done to cope with something that's not pleasant. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And all these other sessions I'd go with people, it's like something that make them feel better, a bit of general relaxation in it, just sort of, you know, going to the mind spa effectively. There was you know, a control panel directly controlling symptoms. Yes. And playing about with that in there was making sure that they also increased the problem and decreased it. Yeah, yeah. So that's that flexibility of I can't, I can't cope, I can't do this, and yet actually you've just done it. Yeah. I mean, as they've already done it, they go, oh, okay, yeah. that's myth busted, it's gone now, they don't, they don't, they're not stuck where they thought they were. Mm. And then there's a little bit of um, the, di- the gut directed, just a, you know, a nod towards Warwell and the whole point yeah. of the service existing, which is about, you know, a nice hypnotic garden where you can change the flow of a river, you know, get some of the turbulence out, increase the speed if yeah. you're constipated, slow down the speed if you've got diarrhea, that sort of a thing. Yeah. And it's all about... You know, learning for them to feel good about themselves, a nice positive experience, none of this challenging stuff, not telling them they're wrong, but suggesting that perhaps they've got a, there's a better way of coping than they have done. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and typically then, Helen, how many, uh, how many sessions would you, would you tend to see people for? Well, on the NHS, I sold a kidney to get them 10. Right, great, so I great. Found people really needed the idea that they could have up to 10. So that's that, that, that's very similar sort of um, um, treatment plan to to that of Warwell and yes, um, and Powson. Um, yeah, yeah um, I, I think Powson was nine. Yeah, um, and they um, wanted so, me to do less and fewer and save money that way. I was saying I want them not to come back. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, can I have up to ten? And each point, there was the patient who decided whether they came back. Yeah, and they said a lot of them. To be honest, when we got to about sometimes six. Your average person said, well, I don't want to do this anymore. My IBS is sorted, but I've got problems with confidence in general life. I've got an interview I want to prepare for or the dental stuff. They go, can we do that? And it would be everything to do with IBS and nothing to do with IBS because it was something that was bothering them. I see. 
So we decided absolutely everything in the time that we could. Yeah. There's nothing off board. Yeah. Um, um, that, that, I think, um, I mean, it, sound, it sounds brilliant. And um, with regards to... Um, with regards to the sort of the sort of processes then that you spoke about afterwards that they tended to have some some parallels and some similarities um but you you were finding that you know it wasn't standardized necessarily but 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 you had the certain typical things that you would perhaps use and equip the clients with um would they then use those as as skills so to speak um or would or, or would that be something that that would that was sort of just within the session and that they could then go on and practice or or not i felt it was essential for them to practice great and keep things going there was one place as in on that cd there was a, a perfect place so some people have it's a safe place and i thought sometimes with certain words you've got an association that i don't want to have so i think it's a perfect place which is perfect for you yeah. and then it can be the, the cool place if you're somewhere who doesn't like getting too hot it can be the beach if you like that sort of a thing it's not too prescriptive so you haven't got somebody arguing with you in their head that this isn't my perfect place i don't like this particular thing yeah and yeah. also give them permission to not like what i was saying and only one person said to me actually i don't like the cave sure. like, heck that's fine in session i could change it but yeah. outside the session on the cd it was already there so i had to say well if i say cave and you think of something else go with what you want Every time I say cave, you think of what you think of, and you're right. I'm just guiding you. Great, great. And there was an anchor to the perfect place. And, and, and I'm sure most people have tried. If you have set up an anchor and then forget about it and then go, oh, I'm going to stick my fingers together and make this lovely ring <laughs> in the middle of stress, it ain't going to work. No. And then that unpicks every bit of work you've done. Yeah. So I say practice it when you're calm to feel even better. And then when you need it, because you're so used to doing it, it's going to help you. And then with that, just the anchor, without even trying to say it could help you somewhere else, people got over their fear of MRI scans and CT scanners, which are very claustrophobic, and you know, the MRI is particularly noisy. Yeah, absolutely. They'd go and get the tests that they needed because they were no longer scared. Mm, mm. And they'd use this anchor to get jobs, interviews, and all these things, all this sort of incidental, wonderful, helpful stuff. But I said, like when I first did my sort of training, I just qualified, I used it a little bit and I thought, oh, this is magical. This is a wonderful thing to be able to help people with. And I left it for a while and I thought, I never could do that. I made that up. I never really could. And I found if my patients in that had that same doubt that they could end up going, oh, help, I could never do this. This never worked for me. And again, that would everything we would have done would have been undone. But if they kept it consistent... Like at the end, I would give them a, a CD that sort of reviewed what we'd done rather than getting you stuck at the beginning. But I said, use both CDs, even if it's once a month, keep using it throughout your life to remind yourself of how far you've come. Yeah, yeah. And any of the particular things like the control panel stuff, there are people who work that brilliantly in the waking state and there are people saying, I can only do it in a trance state. So do whatever suits you. But remember that, use your CD to associate with that. Yeah, yeah. And practice those skills and keep them current. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love the fact that um, you know equipping people with skills and developing self-efficacy is just something that I, I really applaud whenever I hear um, that there's that there's such a good focus upon it because I think you know the very nature of just establishing self-efficacy spreads and generalizes itself into so many other aspects of life that it's such a good. Uh, um, way of you know mobilizing ability and strength of character and so many other things um um 
Helen, thank you so much for today. This has been absolutely wonderful. Um, um, uh, Links to all of the uh, uh, websites that Helen mentioned earlier, along with some some of the papers that Helen's written, will be over at the website um, um, of this episode today. So do go and have a good read of those. Um, And really all that remains for me to say today, Helen Bremner, thank you very much for coming and being a part of Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Some fascinating, very useful and insightful information there for all. A link to Helen's personal website, her specialist IBS website and some of her journal articles and studies feature over at the Hypnosis Weekly website. So on to this week's Hypnosis Fact of the Week. And it's this. The Babinski reflex does not prove that hypnosis can be used to literally regress. Mmm, mm, intriguing, eh? So, way back in 1948, Gidro Frank and Bowers Bush conducted a piece of research whereby six selected subjects were hypnotised and it was suggested that they return to being just four months old. This seems like a very specific age to regress to, doesn't it? They had a particular reason for using this age, and it was due to the fact that the textbooks of the day clearly stated that when a four-month-old baby is stimulated on the sole of the foot, the baby responds with what was known as the Babinski reflex. The Babinski reflex is where the large toe moves backwards and the other toes on that foot all spread out. Those very same textbooks also mentioned that once the same baby reached six months old, from then onwards, will react in the normal way whereby the toes move forward. That's what's meant by the Babinski reflex. So, our hypnosis experiment that was conducted by Gidrow Frank and Bowers Bush attempted to see whether that same physiological Babinski reflex response would happen when hypnosis was used to regress the subject back to the age of four months. Following the research experiment, it was reported that half of the test subjects did actually regress to the age of four months old and responded psychophysiologically to the stimulation given to the foot. That is, they showed the Babinski response. There was the evidence needed to show hypnosis being a special state whereby people could go back and recreate the same state within themselves with accuracy of a much younger age. The therapeutic applications would be enormous. Hurrah! Bear in mind that also Freud's work was still fresh at the time of this experiment. And at that time, Freud was only just sort of it only just passed away. So this was a victory for regression proponents and special state theorists all around then, surely. Well, the celebrations were short-lived, I'm sorry to say, and today most professionals within the hypnosis and hypnotherapy field are just blissfully unaware of this experiment. As Theodore Barber, real hero of mine, Theodore Barber and colleagues Spanos and Chavez later pointed out, the findings of this experiment were invalid. Ah, it was later shown that textbooks referred to uh, earlier on were actually incorrect. The the Babinski response, excuse me, I'm muddling my words. The Babinski response is not actually characteristic of four-month-old babies. Even as far back as the 1921 author Burr showed real wide variations in the response of 69 infants and as a result concluded that, 
I shall quote, no specific movements of the toes could be considered as characteristic of the infantile response to stimulation on the sole of the foot. Hmm. Then again, in 1930, Wolf showed that only 13 of the 389 four-month-old babies actually responded with the defined Babinski response. It would seem that the basis of the research experiment was undermined by basing it on textbooks that had not actually used any proper evidence to support their claims. The Babinski response was not a characteristic response of four-month-old babies at all. Well, some people may still be asking the reasons for three of the grown-up subjects in the Gidro Frank and Bowers Bush experiment showing a Babinski response. In 1956, Theodore Sarbin suggested that the subjects may have become aware of the purpose of the experiment and may have voluntarily performed the Babinski response. Thus, they knowingly moved their large toe backwards while spreading their toes out. For the record, I seem to have an inability to do this and I've been trying to do so repeatedly in my office since writing this. We could speculate and discuss a wide variety of reasons for the responses in the experiment, but most non-state theorists, myself included, and those not supposed, that, that do not support regression in the field of hypnosis, myself included, tend to agree that what was important was that Gidro, Frank and Bowers-Bush experiment did not successfully show a special effect that is unique to four-month-old babies. So it's argued that there's no real evidence as a result of this experiment to suggest that subjects were in a special state and truly experiencing that age due to hypnosis. So there I was, thinking I was a smart aleck, raising these discussions with originality when these debates have been around since my grandparents were youngsters. Now then, I have some sad news for you regular listeners, and that is that Hypnosis Weekly is going to be offline for a few weeks. I take most of August off each year to spend time with my family and to reinvigorate, and I have some major projects to complete before then too. So we'll be back at the end of summer. Our next issue, however, is going to be a real treat. We will have multi-guests and we'll be having a celebratory anniversary issue. I do have many more exciting guests lined up that we'll be welcoming to Hypnosis Weekly too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with the related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com That's Hypnosis Weekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and really help us reach more of the hypnosis field. My thanks go to Helen Bremner. My thanks to you for tuning in this week. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.